hear scripture too, I thought it would kind of be neat to have my wife Heidi read the verse and for Nazareth to read the verse uh, in her Persian language from her Persian Bible today too. So let's pray this prayer though as we prepare to hear God speak to us. Lord Jesus Christ, your light shines within us. Let not our doubts nor our darkness speak to us, but may your word be heard and let our hearts always welcome your love. Amen. from Revelation 5, 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on a throne, a scroll written within, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. آنگاه در دست راست آن تخت نشین توماری دیدم با نوشته هایی بر پشت و روی آن و تومار به هفت مهر ممهور بود. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. و فرشته نیرومند دیدم که به بانگ بلند ندا میداد کیست که سزاوار برداشتن مهرها و گشودن تومار باشد و هیچ کس نه در آسمان نه در زمین و نه در زیر زمین توان آن نداشت که تومار را برگشاید و یا حتی در آن نظر کند and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and open its seals. آنگاه یکی از پیران به من گفت گریان مباش اینک آن شیر قبیله یهودا آن ریشه داوود غالب آمده است تا تومار و هفت مهر آن را بگشاید This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. We uh, find ourselves in the fourth and final week of Advent as we anticipate the wonder of Christmas Day which is the birth of Jesus, our Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And, and isn't it incredible, don't you think, that the Lord of life, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is as fully God as God the Father is God, that he took on human flesh and became a man. I hope no matter how many Christmases we celebrate, we're, we're never over that, that that always moves our heart, the incarnation he didn't start out a full-grown man like Adam did in the garden. No, he started his earthly life like all of us as an infant. And though he was God, because of his humble human beginning, he needed to be fed and to be changed and to be cared for like any other baby. And maybe you can close your eyes and imagine the scene. Little baby Jesus, Mary and Joseph in their humble home with their family pets gathered around the fire, huddled for warmth. I think Christmas carols are really, really good at capturing the scene, this nativity. Uh, but sometimes they add stuff that's just not true. Uh, sorry if Away in the Manger is your favorite. Uh, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. So far, so good. <clears throat> 
The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. All right, stop. <laughs> right? What kind of baby doesn't cry? Answer, no kind of baby. Friends, Jesus doesn't need us to rescue him from humanity, from his full humanity. In fact, if he's not a real human crying and all, then we're in a whole lot of trouble, aren't we? But I get it. I get that there's something really challenging about seeing helpless, totally human baby Jesus in the Gospels and trying to reconcile that Jesus with the one, for instance, we see in the book of Revelation, right? They seem to be very different people, don't they? Nativity Jesus is crying and nursing and in need of protection. Revelation Jesus, on the other hand, it's the way one pastor puts it. He's a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. Now, whatever you think of that description, and it's got problems, especially the context in which that was written, but it's undeniable that there's a good deal of wrath and judgment in the book of Revelation. You can't read chapters 6 to 20 and not see that. But friends, the book of Revelation is not primarily about wrath. There's something that's even more central, more important. It's worship. It's giving God his due. It's the acknowledgement that God is precious, far more than the jewels that adorn his presence. He's supremely valuable. He's worthy. That's what dominates the scene in Revelation 4 and 5, the worship of our worthy God. Before we get into that, just a few notes about the book as it's new to us in the year of the Bible. Uh, the title for the book is Revelation. It's the, the Greek word apocalypsis, which sounds like apocalypse. It means unveiling or revealing. And that's fitting because as we make our way through the book, we get to peek at some of the unseen spiritual forces operating behind the scenes in human history. We learn about God's plan for his people as we move forward through history to the climax, things that would remain hidden unless they were revealed for us, and we learn those in the book of Revelation. It's uh, written by John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the, the same author of the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but we see as we read, John's more of a messenger and less of the author. The author is Jesus. And we learned that right off the bat. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And he saw some incredible things. Jesus gives John, his servant, two commands in the first four chapters of the book. The first command is to write write to the seven churches. Here's what I want you to write. John does it, and you can read those letters in chapters two and three. The second command is in chapter four, and Jesus says, come up here. So I'm thinking that would have been weird, right? You're on the island of Patmos. You're having, already having this strange conversation with the risen and ascended Jesus. You're thinking about wrapping up that letter to the Laodiceans, and then you hear a voice that says, come up here. You're like, Where? Well, that's where we'll go with John this morning. Uh, there's a, an outline in your bulletin if you want to use that. We'll start with the setting. It's from earth to heaven. And that seems a little ironic 
uh, for today's message, that it's up there in heaven because Christmas is about God leaving up there and coming down here to earth. In the incarnation, God came from heaven to earth to be born among us, but here in Revelation 4 and 5, this morning, we move the other way from earth to heaven. Look at Revelation 4.1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John gets called up to heaven where Jesus has apparently left the door open for him. The first century churches, the, the seven churches of Asia Minor to whom John writes, they all have and will continue to have struggles. That's guaranteed. But he says, after that, and that's what much of the rest of the book of Revelation is about, the events of the end times, chapter 6 and following. But here in chapters 4 and 5, where we're at today, sandwiched between the now of the letters to the churches and the then of the seals and trumpets and bowls and beasts, we're reminded what life is about, what history is about, what we were created for. It's the central theme of Revelation. Again, it's not wrath. What is it? Worship. The heavenly scene is breathtaking. I'm sure words fail to adequately describe what John saw, but he records what he can, and it's awe-inspiring. Listen to chapter 4. Excuse me. John gets invited to come up and enter through an open door, the very place where God's presence dwells, and this is what he sees. Chapter 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. There's a lot of likes or as's in the book of Revelation because it's not exactly, but like, as, like a sea of crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and all the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast down their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Amen? Amen. So if we're paying attention to repeated words in this chapter... We can't get away from the throne, 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 throne. 14 times in chapter 4, the word throne. Four more times in chapter 5. 
And this is the throne room of God. We're being reminded heavily that that's where you are. And a throne calls attention to a king and his authority. Uh, we don't have a monarchy, do we? Uh, I mean, Julie and I watched The Crown on Netflix, but that's not the same thing, is it? No, they understood this imagery really well. Those living in the Roman Empire in the first century, they got it right away, what was being said here. They had a long history of kings and sovereign rulers, of emperors and Caesars in their day. When they heard Revelation 4, 10, and 11, the parallels between John's fantastic vision up there and their world down here would have been impossible to miss. One writer, an ancient writer named Tacitus, records a time Tacitus records a time when the Parthian king uh, Tiridates laid his crown at Nero's, the emperor's feet. He came before him. He laid down his crown. Also, when an emperor like Nero would come into town, into a city, they were greeted by people yelling, worthy are you, right? They're not just saying we honor you. They were saying more than that. Anyone from history remember a fellow named Domitian? Domitian, anyone? Three people? He was emperor of Rome from AD 81 to 96, and historians tell us he constructed an imperial temple in Ephesus with an enormous statue of himself. He came down hard on foreign religions, so Christianity. He heavily taxed the Jews. He became a successor to Nero in his hatred and enmity toward God. He was a real bad guy. And do you know what he liked to be called? Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. That was his favorite title for himself. Think about all that in light of verses 10 and 11. Look there again at your Bible. The Parthian king casting his crown at Nero's feet. The Roman Caesars hearing people shout, worthy are you when they came to town. The emperor Domitian, who lived at the same time of the writing of Revelation, wanting to be addressed as Lord and God. So it's all very familiar to them. They didn't miss the point. God, as he's described by John, is not asking for a seat at the worthy table. No, he's saying, I'm the only one that deserves to be at this table. God is the undefeated, undisputed, never going to lose champion of the world. Amen. And when John's readers heard... What John says in verses 10 and 11, what they very clearly heard is God is worthy and Caesar is not. That's what they heard. That's why Christians were persecuted, not simply for having a different religion, but for claiming to have the only true religion, for saying God alone is worthy, Jesus alone is Lord, for refusing to bow down to false gods for being unwilling to fall prostrate before wannabe, poser, lords and gods. Caesar is not worthy, is he? Oh, he's lucky to have a salad named after him. <laughs> God alone is worthy. That's what the first century readers would have understood. God is enthroned and all worship is directed toward him. They cry in verse 11, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. Why is he worthy? 
for or because you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Right? As the creed says, I believe in God the Father, maker or creator of heaven and earth. And as such, because he's creator and only God can make that claim, he's worthy. And this whole scene in heaven says, yes, that's right. It's an amazing mixture of images from the prophets and Mount Sinai, Israel's temple, the glory of God. With all the expected shaking and, and shining that goes with it, it evokes praise from those gathered around the throne. Holy are you, worthy are you, creator, God. That's the setting, the, the throne room of God in heaven where God alone is worshipped. But then in chapter 5, our attention is captured by a dramatic situation. Just as there is a shift from earth to heaven between 3 and 4, there in chapter 5 is another shift from weeping to worship. These opening verses in chapter 5 are so full of drama. Situation starts with weeping, ends with worship. We heard the verses read already from Heidi and Nasrin, so I'll just summarize what they read. God is enthroned. He's holding a scroll, has writing on the front and the back. It's sealed with seven seals. An angel calls out who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, and no one anywhere to be found is worthy. And so John writing about himself, says he began to weep, and loudly, he adds, what's the big deal, we might think? There's a document that can't be opened. Aren't there worse things? Well, no, there's not worse things, because this scroll, when opened, will inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth, the consummation of all things. The completion of our salvation, it depends on that scroll being opened, the crooked being made straight, all wrongs being righted and staying right forever. It depends on that scroll being opened. Heaven come down. We, that's our prayer, isn't it, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Isn't that what we're saying? Heaven come down. That's what's coming the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord, but not until the scroll is opened, and the scroll won't be opened unless someone is found worthy to open it. And when John realizes no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is, is worthy to open the scroll and look into it, verse 3, the heaven would never come down, that God's will would never be fully and finally done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that was too much for him to bear, and he loses it. I don't know what it's like to be trapped in a life-threatening situation. Uh, maybe you do. Someone after the first service told me of a time they were. Sounded really scary, but to think no one's coming to rescue me and I'm going to die. I imagine that's something of the dread that John felt in that moment. And it wasn't just that he wouldn't be rescued, but the rescue plan for all creation was in danger of being thwarted. That darn scroll, right? If we were in heaven, maybe we'd be thinking that. I mean, can't someone just pry it open and get things going? Right? We'd probably form a committee, get our tools. And then if you think about it, there's four living creatures, 24 elders, and God sitting on the throne. Can't someone here do anything about this? One Bible commentator, and if there's ever a book of the Bible to pick up a good commentary, it's the Revelation, isn't it? It is one Bible commentator says, 
In the ancient world, documents were sealed with wax, impressed with the author's insignia as a token of authenticity, but also for security and privacy. A sealed scroll could not be read until its seals were broken, but you had to be authorized to break it. And that's the problem. Who is qualified, deserving by right, and authorized by the scroll's author to break the seals and disclose its message? See, what John... Oh, you are so kind. Look at that. I don't know if that's from my nose or my forehead or... Merry Christmas to me. Thank you, Kathy. I might as well blow my nose while I'm... No. So that was the problem. You had to be authorized to break the scroll. What John didn't know what, what, was that the authority to do that, to open the scroll, to carry out the will of the author, the authority to do that had been given or transferred from the Father to the Son. John's about to find out that that's happened, but he doesn't know it yet. All he knows is no one anywhere is able to open it. And so he weeps and he weeps until he hears those amazing words that all God's people will hear one day when God wipes away every tear from our eyes. Weep no more. Weep no more, one of the elders says to him. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And that image of a lion... When we hear lion, we're supposed to think strength, power. I mean, there's a reason they're called the king of the jungle, right? The two references to the, the tribe of Judah and root of David, those both come from Old Testament passages that refer to the Messiah, the coming king who will conquer his enemies. For John to hear the lion is here, the lion can do it, he can open the scrolls. What great news, right? His, his heart's probably beating out of his chest. His world was full of violence. The vulnerable were being oppressed. Injustice was abounding. Righteousness was hard to find. The churches were suffering. But good news, the lion of the tribe of Judah is here. And wouldn't this be kind of a triumphant thing in most of our minds? Like, now the hammer of God's going to drop. Now all God's enemies are going to get the smackdown they deserve. Go, lion, go, Right? That would be understandable to be our cheer. Go, lion, go. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, not what we'd expect, right? Not a lion, but I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And we think, a lamb? We were promised a lion. I mean, if I heard good news, the lion of the tribe of Judah is here and he can open the scroll and, and execute, carry out the plans that are in that scroll, and I heard that, the lion's here, he can do it, and then I turned and I saw a lamb, it would be a shock. I would fully expect to turn and see a lion, and I would, in my mind, know what kind of, of, of situation that would be, I, that experience, like he would roar Right again, Aslan, he would roar. Everyone who has hair that would blow back at the, at the power of his roar. In his eyes, we'd see a holy fire, right? And he would turn those eyes toward the earth and he'd get ready to go eat up some enemies 
and we'd all cheer, go, lion, go. But when John turns to, to see the lion, what he sees instead is a lamb slain. I don't know what John was thinking at this moment, but if I had to pick, if I'm honest, if I had to pick between lion Jesus or lamb Jesus, I would probably side with lion Jesus. Why? Because lions eat others and lambs get slaughtered. Back to verse 6. This lamb, it seems, has already been slaughtered. He bears the marks of death and is now standing, which means he's alive. And this, lion, or this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, and seven's the number of perfection in the book of Revelation. It points to his perfect power and his perfect knowledge. And this lamb, verse 7 says, when he took the scroll from the right hand, that's the hand of authority, from the one who sits on the throne, he grabs that scroll that no one else could take, only him. When he does it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, recognizing his authority, they fall down before him, before the lamb, to worship him, just like they did before the Lord God in chapter 4. They've got harps in their hands and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I don't know how you play a harp and hold a bowl at the same time. I have a hard time just holding them onto my cell phone without dropping it. But that's not the point here, is it? The point is that the Lamb, Jesus, just like the Lord God Almighty, is worthy of worship. He's the only one who can turn our mourning into dancing, our weeping into Worship, the lamb is worthy. And their song tells us why. Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Again, we might have expected a lion right, the line of the tribe of Judah, put a beating on all God's enemies. But instead, Jesus is the one who gets the beating, right, unto death, like a lamb who's led to the slaughter. And the crazy part of this praise song is that his death is the victory, which makes him worthy to open the scroll. See, what other king wins a victory by dying, not by sword, but by sacrifice. That's how Jesus the Lamb achieved the victory. Christ is the conqueror, right? He is the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the conquering Messiah. But his victory was won on the cross when he bled and died. His death was powerful. What did his powerful death do? Verse 9, it ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We've had a great example of that here this morning with Nasrin. From Israel to Iran, from Missouri to Mozambique, from Venezuela to Venice, both Venices, Venice, Italy, and Venice, California. We don't have to pick, it's both. His death is that powerful to ransom or rescue people from the four corners of the earth. And what did he ransom us from? What did he rescue us from? From condemnation for our sins. Worthy is the lamb. 
from idolatry that worships beasts and false prophets and sex and money and power and our children and our way of life and our comfort and ourselves, but not God. Worthy is the Lamb. He ransomed us from eternal torment under the wrath of God in the lake of fire. Worthy is the Lamb. If you've put your trust in Jesus, the Lamb of God is your Lord, then all that's left for you is God's favor. Condemnation, no more. Right? Wrath, no more. Hopelessness and despair, no more. Weep no more. Behold, the Lamb of God has conquered. God's people aren't just ransomed to get them out of trouble. And if you've been in a lot of trouble, I know some of you have right here. It's nice to get out of trouble, isn't it? But it's more than that. The song goes on, verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. A kingdom, a priesthood, a rule. We were bought by the lamb to be given to God for three reasons, to live under his care, that's the kingdom, to live lives of service to him and others, that's the priesthood, and perhaps most incredibly, to share in his reign, that's the rule. We could go on and on, but we have to wrap it up. If we read chapters four and five from start to finish, which we've almost done this morning, we'll notice that there are five doxologies or five praise songs. So track them with me. And the first song's in chapter four, verse eight. The four living creatures sing to the one who sits on the throne. The second song's in 411. The 24 elders sing to the one who sits on the throne. The third song in five, nine, and 10, you have the four living creatures plus the 24 elders. So 28, the choir's getting bigger. And their song is directed to the lamb, not the one who sits on the throne, but the lamb. Fourth song in 512, angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, so way more than 28 worshipers, and their song is also directed to the lamb. But then there's a fifth and final song where it all comes together. All the worshipers from the last four songs are present. They've been joined by every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that's in them. And who are they singing to? Not either the one who sits on the throne or to the Lamb, but both of them at the same time. Verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now, the Lamb is great. And anyone hearing this, these, these Jews that were monotheists, and they believed there is only one God, they would have read this, they would have heard this, and they would have thought, the lamb is great. He's done some amazing things. But is the lamb worthy to be worshiped alongside the one who sits on the throne? Is the lamb that glorious? Right? Is the lamb that majestic? Is the lamb just as worthy as the one who sits on the throne? As worthy as the creator, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, is he that worthy. The four living creatures think so, and in verse uh, 14, they give their amen. 
The 24 elders think so too, and they fall down and worship. Friends, we would be wise to follow their lead. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus is the lamb of God. He conquers his enemies, but he does it in a very unexpected way through death. But he didn't stay dead, did he? I know it's Advent and Easter's three and a half months away, but we're going to do this anyway. Are you ready? He is risen. risen What a Savior. What a victory. How incredibly practical this is as well. Did you know that? We might read this and think, oh, it's great. It's telling us all about worshiping way off then, how great God is in the throne room. One day, heaven will be down here and we'll be able to do all this stuff. But what about now? How practical this is right now now, who God is, what he's done. This scene in Revelation 4 and 5 brought comfort to a good friend of mine toward the end of his battle with pancreatic cancer. He so looked forward to joining the heavenly choir. In fact, we had his funeral in this very room, his memorial service. We sang a song that we're going to sing in just a moment based on these chapters at Revelation 4 and five. And as we conclude our service, <coughs> excuse me, I hope you'll consider the question, will you weep or will you worship? And I hope you'll worship. I hope you'll bow down with all creation and sing, worthy is the lamb. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you've come from heaven to earth to be born among us. We thank you that we've got to go the other direction and come to your throne room this morning and see how wonderful you are, how glorious you are. You who sit on the throne are worthy of our praise. And so is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you for Jesus Christ and all that he is for us. May we put our hope in him, and may we always be able to sing this song, Worthy is the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. voices this morning as we sing to God of all of heaven.
this time of year, we recognize the gift of Jesus to us. Let's sing together, light of the world, light of the world, you step down into darkness, open my eyes, let me all stand together as we sing here I am here I am to worship here I am to bow down here I am to say that you're my great to be here together today. We hope to see you back Tuesday night for our Christmas Eve services. If uh, you would like to pray with someone after the service, down here and to your right, we have uh, Glenn and Liz. They would love to join you in prayer. Our uh, benediction today comes from Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.